0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, how the Air Education and Training Command is transforming U.S. Air Force training. But first, joining us is my good friend Byron Callan of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, uh, with a look at earnings, an update on the budget, on the infrastructure measure, and a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Happy to be here, Bago. It wouldn't be Monday uh, unless you were joining us. So appreciate it very much. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Byron, uh, just when everybody thought that Joe Biden uh, was not getting anything done, and obviously after the shock of the election last week, uh, it appears that he and Nancy Pelosi and members of Congress actually got it done. There's a $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure plan. Uh, that was passed with 13 uh, Republican uh, votes. Um, What does it mean for national security from from where you're sitting?
1: Well, I think a couple of very general things. I mean, clearly it doesn't have a direct bearing on contractors from the amounts that are in the the budget. But, you know, uh, from a very big picture standpoint, it does suggest that the United States can actually get some stuff done and invest in domestic infrastructure. And this is not just <clears throat> roads, bridges, and tunnels. Um, you know, there's money for broadband, which I think is important, particularly for rural areas. There's water um, uh, spending as well. So it's a, it's a, you know, how long have we been waiting for an infrastructure bill? The, the standing joke in Washington is that it's always infrastructure week. Well, it's finally arrived. Um, it, it was interesting to your point, you know, that, that it did pass. It wasn't just a straight party vote. You actually had some Democrats and the progressive wing vote against it, but you did have uh, 13 Republican representatives <clears throat> come over and, and join Democrats to pass the legislation. So um I think I think it's a good thing. The one other point I'd make on this FAGO is <clears throat> you know the, the numbers that are thrown around, they're always big numbers, you know trillion dollars, but that's over an eight year time frame. If you look at the Congressional Budget Office score when the Senate passed its version of this legislation back in August, a lot of the money, the real growth rates in spending don't occur until 2024, 25 and 26. And so if there are concerns that somehow this is going to place even more of a burden on the defense sector because of the competition for skilled workers, particularly in the trades, then you're going to see more more materials inflation. Um, You know, this is going to take a while for this money to really kind of course through the economy. And so I don't see this as a new risk that's being dumped on top of contractors, where they're gonna have these runaway inflation costs and or they're gonna lose workers or have have even more competition to hire workers to deliver um, on the nation's defense needs.
0: And, and how do you see uh, the link, right? I mean, I, I think that people have a tendency of not recognizing that some of this stuff is very uh, hard to do. It's complicated. It's politically complicated. It's legislatively uh, complicated. I mean, we saw Republicans work for quite some time on their tax cut, and that was a much simpler proposal than the, the, uh, either the infrastructure uh, measure. And, and by the way, tax cuts are spending too, right? I mean, I think people want to sort of portray this as this is spending and somehow tax cuts aren't i mean there was all deficit financed uh, as as well uh, ultimately um you know how do you how do you connect this infrastructure measure with the social measure and and what that will mean given um that Right. I mean, depending on how you look at it, this this does uh, extend to security and at least maybe helping Americans feel a little bit more secure in their lives, address some of the political challenges uh, and, and the sort of disconnects and have-have-not feelings uh, that have existed uh, that are reflected in the electorate. I mean, how do you view the connection between this uh, and uh, the 1.85 billion $1 trillion dollar measure that the president yeah, and his I party mean, it, are negotiating clearly,
1: States. you know, uh, build back better is still uh, a work in process. Uh, you know, it's probably going to run through this year and into early next year before you finally get some kind of agreement on this. Uh, you know, it, it's quite apparent the the contentious debates on all sides about what this is and what spending it's in and ironically in that act, there is one provision that's important for the defense sector and that's the R and D tax credit. Um, You know, under current law, that R and D tax credit will um, revert to a five-year amortization of R and D for tax credit purposes. Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman talked about this in their earnings call. So if we don't get them billed back better, these companies are going to be paying higher uh, cash taxes and and see a higher tax rate as a result of this change in the treatment of the uh, of the tax on that that was something by the way that uh, was was birthed by the 2017 tax cut so um, it, it's kind of interesting that um, it, it is now embedded in, in build back better a, a change that should be beneficial to some of the defense because then of course, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure and build back better too. Um, it's more general, it's things like housing, um, the, um, electric vehicle, a lot of the initiatives, uh, there are, and, you know, basic workforce training are also part of this. So, um, that is going to be more difficult, I think, for reasons that are probably very apparent to your listeners and for some of the things that, that Michael and Gordon have talked about as well too. But, You know, I I think the fact that the administration and Congress did get the Infrastructure and Investment Jobs Act through, that should be viewed in a positive light for defense, because it does suggest that there's room for compromise and that you could see, you know, when all the dust settles on FY22 appropriations, you know, in my view, it makes it a little bit more likely, actually not a little bit, it makes it more likely that uh, you will see a $25 billion increase in the FY 22 defense budget um, above beyond the administration's request. And as I said, I think some of these other build back better um, factors, you know, the tax issue is a direct issue for defense, but more broadly, some of the changes in workforce development, and manufacturing technology, um, that, that should have spinoff impacts on, on really the national ability to compete in a global marketplace. And, uh, and provide for national defense. Uh,
0: and, and that is uh, certainly, uh, the supporters of the measure have certainly made that argument. I mean, do you think that it changes inflationary pressures? Again, we have a tendency of forgetting that this is a 10-year measure and does include some things that are that the government is already spending, right? Like anything we do, we have a tendency, of, you know what I mean? It, it's not fresh spending necessarily. There are elements of other programs that are in this. So, you know, well,
1: I mean, one it's, side it's, wants
0: yeah. to make it appear bigger, another side wants to make it appear smaller, yeah, right? Yeah, of
1: course. And I mean, the, the simple fact is, you know, the US has a $21 trillion economy. Now we've, we've got debt, uh, you know, that, that's in that amount and headed probably to $30 trillion. By the end of the decade as well, but the cost to finance this are really very minor, (laughs) um, certainly compared to eras when there were higher rates and higher inflation uh, as well. Um, I've seen some analysis uh, last week that if you really started to pull apart the inflation data, it was really very narrowly confined um, yeah, there's been, you know, people having, um, getting paid more at McDonald's or, or some of the service industries, but, you know, from a broad sector standpoint, I think there's still a pretty healthy debate about whether or not this is something really permanent and that you're going to start dialing in, you know, five, six, 7% inflation, or that this is really just a reflection of COVID-19 uh, and the pandemic. And then a the year from now, you know, we're going to see, we're going to see inflation uh, moderate again back to to more manageable levels. And uh, I just think it's something, you know, people have to keep an open mind on this and, and continue to look at data and look at what the data suggests about this. Uh,
0: if if only, uh, Byron, all things uh, economic were dispassionate um, and, and didn't have to do with uh, sentiment and fear uh, as, as opposed to rationality. We've got a couple of minutes left. Uh, walk us through... Um, what you sense right in your sort of look ahead note, you you, talk, you obviously talk about the week ahead, but you also mentioned mergers uh, and acquisition. Uh, we've got Viasat uh, merging with Inmarsat, which is an interesting deal, two very important and interesting companies. Uh, give us your sort of overall thoughts uh, on where you think we're going from an MA standpoint, because obviously we have a new administration that's talked about the importance of competition. Um, but also talked in by American terms, right? Yeah, it's really,
1: you know, it's just an observation, but if you look at this in inflation-adjusted terms, I look at uh, kind of the deal value for defense transactions greater than $100 in 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 size, and these are announced transactions. Um, Go back to 1990, I don't think a lot of people would appreciate this, but 2021 is the third highest Year in terms of the value of defense MA over that time period. And you've seen a lot of deals that are kind of interesting. Private equity has been on both sides of these transactions, they've been buyers and sellers of defense property. I think it's interesting that you've seen still a lot of reshaping among defense services companies. You know, um, CACI just bought another um, uh, kind of an optics company, they, they continue to add product to their business portfolios as opposed to, you know, simply people who would sit in cubes and (laughs) write code or or work on uh, enterprise network solutions. Um, And I think the other part that intrigues me is um, you've seen some multi-industry companies uh, come into defense. I mean, the the United Technologies Raytheon um, deal, you know, 2019 was kind of the, the big marker from that, but you know, one of the larger transactions this year was the Teledyne FLIR uh, acquisition, and um, Cobham Mission, you know, also went to a, a multi-sector company. So there's a lot, a lot, a lot going on here. We don't predict merger and acquisitions, you know, going forward, but I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, investment bankers are going to continue to be uh, busy. Um, I would expect that, you know, as these Kind of growth vectors really start to change in defense there will be more portfolio shaping and and that uh, you know we still probably have a you know a lot of these sectors particularly in the services side are, are very fragmented um, you don't have the concentration of one or two dominant suppliers the way you do in some discrete defense markets
0: and uh give us uh, an update on what you think are the most important events to be watching uh this week
1: it's fairly quiet, but um, CSBA is going to be doing a webinar on Tuesday on missile defense with, uh, with uh, General Selva, uh, former uh, vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, General Highnote is going to be speaking at the Center for New American Security. On Wednesday, there's also in London, a Royal United Services Institute on Ukraine and its defenses. And then on Friday, uh, well, actually, Hensholt, which is a European defense electronics company, formerly part of Airbus, they're holding a capital markets day on the 11th. I'm sure Chas will probably talk about that because, you know, they sit in an interesting um, position within that market. And then on Friday, Brookings is doing an event on Afghanistan and kind of what some of the policy implications of Afghanistan are going to be.
0: Byron, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much. Hope you have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot.
1: Anytime, Vaga. Thank you.
0: And joining us today is United States Air Force Major Jesse Johnson, who is Dr. Jesse Johnson as well. Uh, He is the commander of DET-23 at the Air Education and Training Command. Is also the chief of T3, which is tech training transformation, one of the people who is reinventing how the United States Air Force does training. Jesse, thanks so very much for joining us.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, really happy to, to be able to share the work we're doing here in AETC.
0: Um, I, I do think it's extraordinary. You know, we uh, had an opportunity to uh, see Ross, uh, Lieutenant General Brad Webb, uh, at uh, the Air Force Association's annual conference and trade show. And I asked him, hey, we should get an update. And he was so excited and said, hey, listen, you've got to talk to Major Johnson. Talk to us a little bit about your guys' mission and how you guys are executing it. You're effectively trying to harness as much really cutting edge technology as possible and getting it into the hands of airmen to change how they train. Talk to us about how you're doing that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So our mission is to modernize Air Force training through the integration of adaptable learning methods and technology uh, to develop the airmen we need, uh, not just for today, but for the future fight. And, uh, we did start off as a small business innovation uh, research project that was a kind of a spinoff of our friends over at the pilot training transformation side. We recognized that if we were uh, doing great work and how we're updating the way we're training pilots, that we should consider other career fields as well. Uh, maintenance being the primary. So uh, our organization was actually stood up as Maintenance Next. Um, We went through about a year and a half long process of exploring uh, student-centered immersive learning systems and whether or not we could uh, bring a different level or a different type of training to airmen with the the goal being a quality of airmen. And when we concluded that, we concluded that we definitely could train airmen um, in an adaptive immersive environment and so our senior leaders uh, believed in what we were doing up to that point and gave us a runway to go forward. And we shifted from just maintenance next to technical training, uh, meaning essentially everybody who has an initial skills requirement uh, before going out to the job. And so we started focusing on uh, how we provide training that allows us to scale resources, uh, increase uh, access to information for every student in a variety of different modalities uh, so that we can actually reach the learner at their need and, and bring the learner or our curriculum to the learner, not the other way around. And uh, that's kind of where we're at today.
0: And you guys are using um, uh, virtual reality technology, uh, VR uh, goggles. You're trying to use artificial intelligence. Talk to us about how you're using each of these techniques and give us some real world examples of how this is changing uh, how folks train. I should point out you're prior enlisted, you're an uh, officer now. You've been in the maintenance career field, everything from transports to uh, F 22 fighters, right? So, an extraordinary breadth of experience. Talk to us about how this technology is changing how the Air Force trains.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We do use AI and, and uh, virtual reality in as one of our primary modalities for how we deliver kinesthetic learning or hands-on training. Uh, but I should point out that it's it's also multimodal. So uh, we want to be able to offer students the ability to listen to their course content audibly if they're an audible learner or watch uh, video lectures if they're visual learners. Uh, the trick of it is what we're trying to get to is is giving that information to the student in the real-time point of need vice the eight-hour standard class where the student's sort of given the fire hose and, and told to drink. Uh, we want to we want to reduce the flow of information uh, to meet the stu- student's need, but at the same time increase the access to the information. So we're no longer um, bottlenecked around a single point of learning or a single flow of information. So um, the virtual and augmented reality actually help us bring these multi-million dollar aircraft assets that are hard to schedule and hard to to uh, maintain even in the training environment it helps us bring those to the student in a way that's accessible 24 7 365 days a year for every single student so it really helps us scale our resources the debt Uh, Our philosophy is that we don't ever uh, intend to replace the instructor, but we intend to provide more learning tools to allow the instructor to more more quickly reach the student learning mindset. And and the idea is to use those things to create cognitive patterns that contribute to muscle memory in further uh, hands-on demonstration and training.
0: The advent of new technology also can change culture, right? The United States Air Force is... A great institutions, sort of like, well, we know how to train, this is how we train, whereas you're actually changing, changing how the service culturally trains, right? Talk to us about that push-pull.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we also recognize, uh, much to your point, it's, it's not our position that the Air Force has trained in correctly for decades. Uh, our position is that if we don't start making changes in the way we present our curriculum, excuse me, if we don't start making changes in the way we present our curriculum, we'll become irrelevant in the very near future. And the reason is if we look at the timeline of, of how the human brain develops uh, versus the technology development over the last 20 years, we see a very strong correlation to the young individuals that are going through their K through 12 experience now are being presented information in a drastically different way than ever has been before. And so the, the science of how our brain puts together information begins at the embryo stage. And roughly through the age of age four, we're developing uh, billions and billions of synapses that basically become the, the whittling block from where, how we build our learning modalities. And uh, beginning around the age of five and going to 14, we go through a process of synapses pairing where we're sort of use or lose, uh, taking away skills that we don't use and finding cognitive maps that store memory and allow us to function in the learning environment. Well, if we look at those folks that we primarily deal with in the Air Force in our recruiting ages of 18 to 25, and we just take that you know, individual who's 18 years old today in 2021, 20, and we back that up against the timeline, we see that uh, at that pivotal point when they were four years old, where we do that crossover from synapsis development to synapsis pairing uh, was about 2007, or it was 2007, and we look at that on the technology timeline and we made a fundamental shift in technology in 2007, between 2007 and 2009, where we stopped doing bundled and centralized delivery of information through the typical classroom. And we moved into right. modular and mobile delivery of information on our cell phones and our tablets. And we all see this, uh, we have this observation when we see the five-year-old that can navigate an iPad better than than we can. So we know that cognitively speaking, those, those children... Uh, in that particular age range have been reshaping the way they learn over the last 10 or 15 years. And now that we're looking at them and how we're developing their adult learning modality, uh, which begins uh, the process of synapses pairing for adult learning at the age of 18 and goes through 25, we have to really think about how uh, their learning foundation was developed at a younger age to be sure that we're reaching that student and the, the need that they have in learning. So Uh, the traditional model of of a single educated individual in the room dispersing knowledge throughout a classroom is is likely not going to be a reality anymore. The instructor is no longer the smartest person in the room. Their their search engine is now the smartest person in the room. So how do you capitalize on those skills, that that understanding of instant access to information? Um, And so you can scale the The instructor to be able to reach every student at a point of learning versus just going at the pace of the slowest student in the class.
0: Talk to us about what the future of military education and training then, if you go, for example, to a commercial aviation model, the first time uh, a a new pilot is flying a real airplane, it has passengers in the back of it, right? It's 1500 hours of simulator time. What is the future of training and what are going to be the most interesting technological and, and new training methodologies, right? If, if you're going to be teaching a new generation of people that fundamentally learn differently than any past generation has.
2: Yeah. So there was a, a scientist or actually a physicist in 1999, who did an experiment in New Delhi, India. he called the uh, hole in the wall experiment uh, where he put a computer essentially in the middle of a small village in uh, connected it to the internet and and just left it there and observed how quickly the undereducated children in that area uh, learned and understood how to operate the computer and what he uh, his conclusion to that uh, that project was that um, where there is interest there will be education and that students will self-organize around a learning objective or inside of a learning environment And I think that that's where the future of tech training is going is the Air Force will get to a point where we're no longer directing a step-by-step process uh, from from, uh, new accession to fully qualified airmen, but we're going to facilitate the flow of information to the student and we'll have more of a self-regulated, self-paced training model where uh, if an Airman uh, is exceptional in understanding technical career fields like the crew chiefs that uh, we focused on early in our development, uh, and they can move quicker through that. Um, but you may have a student who, uh, who's not so adept in that area that, that can move at their own pace and slower. So I think what it is, is it's just shifting the way we're presenting information and uh, shifting the roles of instructors in curriculum development inside of AETC in a way that that keeps that instructor as an expert in their career field uh, and helps us to, to coach and mentor and supervise rather than uh, individual instructor, lecturer uh, from the, the pulpit of the classroom.
0: Part of your charter is to keep this ball moving forward. What are the next challenges, the, the next milestones, uh, the next achievement you guys are trying to chalk up?
2: Our next achievement is actually kind of rolled up into our past achievement pretty tightly. Uh, as we developed this new adaptive immersive course for chief Fundamentals, uh, we were ready to deliver it to the Air Force. Uh, we recognized that the uh, learning ecosystem that was currently available uh, couldn't house that type of technology, wasn't able to stream things like uh, XR type content and certainly wasn't able to store that amount of data and um information around a student and then definitely couldn't provide the analytics. So uh, this past year, we spent our time uh, pushing toward a data analytics platform we call a delivery analysis and reporting platform. Uh, Recently, we just released um, as a requirement in ATC, our platform for, for doing just that. And so the future for uh, the debt is, is more about building those high level enterprise level capabilities that now allows uh, the, uh, Individuals at the schoolhouses and the squadrons, and all the way down to the individual airmen to develop training content and contribute to the Air Force learning ecosystem um, that in a way that allows us to scale education uh, rapidly across the force. Let me just ask
0: you a technological question, right? I mean, we've you, you've basically been focusing, like a lot of educators uh, or smart educators, right, on how people fundamentally learn. What are some of the most interesting Technological development.
2: So I'll start with our delivery analysis and reporting platform. Uh, We call MOTAR or Member Operations Training Analytics and Reports. Uh, That platform allows us to ingest uh, training content and information and data from any number of different vendors uh, and produce a single training course from a variety of different sources for the airmen. So it becomes this one stop shop for training. Uh, and we also get to collect performance data on the student inside of that same platform. So now we can do very in-depth analysis that can uh, ultimately contribute to projects like agile common employment, multi-capable environment philosophies that allow us to scale training rapidly at that point of need uh, because the data analytics exist. What goes inside of that that makes all that possible is this, this robust version of artificial intelligence that is what we call a competency management system which allows us to evaluate an airman's learning record, compare it to a training need and determine the gaps and go out inside of the member operations training analytics and reports platform and grab already created digital training and bring it to the airman and start the training process in a matter of of minutes versus weeks. Uh, And then we layer finally on top of that, how you go out or those digital the digital content that exists inside of that platform, how you build that in such a way that it's Air Force owned and sustained. Uh, so currently a big problem that we've looked at in the SBIR process or small business innovation research process uh, is that a lot of times on those contracts, uh, nothing belongs to the government that close out of the contract. And so uh, we needed to find a way that we can leverage what's built inside of those contracts and bring it back to the AETC enterprise so we're currently working with one of our vendors to develop what we call Air Force Digital Asset Repository that allows us to go out and grab that content, make sure it's Air Force owned and, and Air Force sustained, meaning we're not paying repetitive licenses for decades to come just to maintain you know, one image or a series of images. Uh, so it's fundamentally shifting the way the Air Force is looking at, and when I say Air Force, I mean our software enterprise is looking at how we maintain and control Uh, training content, and it's more looking at it as the human as a weapon system. And this is a way to feed the human as a weapon system to to, uh, make sure that the Air Force owns content and we're not solely reliant on uh, annual contracts or life cycle contracts that have to be renewed to get that training into the students' hands. It also helps us to reduce uh, developmental redundancy where we might have uh, several different entities around the Air Force who unbeknownst to themselves, are building the exact same thing. Uh, this type of platform allows us to show everybody in the Air Force what's already being built. And so if you had an idea to, to build some uh, unique digital model or adaptive immersive training course, uh, a quick search of the uh, member operations training analytics and reports platform or the Air Force digital asset repository would tell you if it existed already or not. Currently, those types of things don't exist in the Air Force uh, and so uh, the debt is really pushing forward on those three big initiatives. Uh,
0: how do you respond to those who say that that's actually maybe not the best approach for the Air Force, that it's actually better if, if the service outsourced that capability, worked with an outside vendor, and then the outside vendor makes all the investment to make sure the
2: technology stays fresh? Yeah, I would say nobody knows the mission of the world's greatest Air Force better than the world's greatest Air Force. Uh, so while I agree that there are some things that are, uh, really useful to to outsource and to have other uh, vendors develop when it comes to force development and, and generating the airmen we need for the future fight. Um, I, I think that's solely a responsibility on us. And uh, while it's great to have small business partners helping us in that light, um, just m- my personal opinion on the matter is that we always got to have the Air Force carrying the torch because we're paying attention to um, both sides of the coin. Uh, for for us, it's not about how fast can we produce a product uh, to sell to the government and and move on to the next hundred. For us, it's it's legitimately how do we produce better quality airmen from from the start of their training in in our system. We say from the the military entrance processing um, part of their career all the way to uh, enrollment in the VA we wanna understand the full scope of the or full spectrum of an airman's learning path and, and be able to, to input different vari- uh, variations of training and different modalities for doing that. And uh, in traditionally speaking from acquisition standpoint, those, uh, those uh, external vendors are not responsive to that rapid shift and that rapid change. Uh, so the, the, for that specific reason, keeping it internal to the Air Force, helps us scale faster and be on the leading edge. That's not to say that we won't uh, build the first few iterations or the first uh, iteration or two, and then look to a vendor to replicate what we've done and then scale it to the next level. But when it comes to immediate, adaptive, immersive updates and training, uh, it's got to be an internal uh, internal function.
0: Jesse, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Best of luck to you and the team. Uh, and look forward to staying in touch as you guys continue uh, to change how the Air Force trains. Thanks so much.
2: Yes, sir. Thank you very much.
0: And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that.